A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. On this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the state of the Brexit talks and whether or not they will end in no deal. And you ask us, what is the state of green politics in the UK? So Michelle Barnier has told EU ambassadors that the talks between the UK and the EU for a trade deal aren't going so well. And this is really being called the crunch week. I know we've we've spoken about crunch weeks in the past, but time is running out before the end of the transition period at the end of December. Stephen, what state are the talks actually in and how likely is it that a deal won't be struck? I mean, the talks are kind of in the same state they've been in broadly since we formally left the political but not the economic institutions on the 31st of January, in that there is a distance between the EU and the UK on the level playing field. So that's basically what punishments you have for both sides if one of them diverges from regulations on some areas. Fishing rights, which I hope is self-explanatory. Oh, and then, of course, market access. Because, yeah, like, so essentially, the, the UK argument is broadly we should be able to have the same level of market access as Canada for the same level of regulatory autonomy. The EU's argument is, well, Canada's like a kajillion million miles away. I paraphrase slightly. On a clear day, we can see you over the channel. So actually, no, you you can't have that level of market access for, for that level of regulatory autonomy. That wouldn't work for us. And essentially, right, and in many ways, it's a perfect microcosm of the Brexit argument, because it really does come down to whether or not you think geography matters in terms of like your trade maximization stuff. Are we going to get a deal? As readers of our funny and free morning email will know, I have like been a long term believer that we wouldn't. But we're no closer to knowing that one way or the other, because this deal will always come down. Yeah, this is always going to come down to, right, does Boris Johnson want to do what he did this time last year, where he basically went, oh, theatre, oh, drama. Oh, by the way, guess what, guys? The border, it's now in the Irish Sea. Is is this all about finessing the necessary concessions to get the deal and to maximise whatever our political and economic strategy is post-Brexit, which is what he did do very effectively last year and what Theresa May did very effectively with the different strategy with the with the backstop agreement or is this the bit where we go off the cliff I'm very much team we go off the cliff partly because I like you know I was probably like the only person who like hasn't entirely switched off of this interminable story 
I realised a couple of weeks ago, I can't tell you what the government wants. And you can't really then go, OK, right, so you want X, which means then you could concede on Y, and that allows you to achieve your aim here. It feels to me that what the government wants is to win the trade negotiations. But you can't win trade negotiations. That's not how they work. That's just actually, in general, that's not how negotiations really work full stop, which means that like the only way that you can win a negotiation is for the negotiation to fail. Yeah, because you have to compromise at some point in order for there to be some kind of agreement. And I thought it was interesting what you wrote in Morning Call about how it's really difficult to assess the success or, or the progress of the of the talks when you don't know what the actual objective is. And I think that's kind of been the case for, for a while. Do we not know what the objective is on purpose? You know, is it because lots of people, particularly who were sympathetic to the Remain side and, and have been sceptical about the talks for the whole time that they've been going on, kind of hold out this hope that Boris Johnson, for all his theatrics, and, you know, let's not forget in October, number 10 declared the talks were, were over, didn't they? And he sort of had this false deadline of the 15th of October that passed and he said, and he told the country to prepare for um, prepare for no deal or what whatever he calls it. He calls it an Australia-style deal. It could be any other country as well, but he's just picked Australia. You always think when he's going through those theatrics and like to, like this week, you know, when he's been in these, when he's going to be in talks with van der Leyen this afternoon, you kind of think, OK, if Boris is involved, are they trying to make it look like he's going in at the 11th hour and being tough in order to cover th- for the fact that they might slip another compromise in there? Because that's not unheard of. Like you, you spoke about what happened last October when he you know, when he got rid of the red line that had been set about the border in the Irish Sea and then claimed that everyone said he couldn't do a deal and he and he achieved the impossible. Is that going to happen again this time round? Is that why they're sort of flexing their muscles in this way? That I know that's sort of the candle of hope that Brexit sceptics hold out for. How likely is it that, that that's true? I mean, honestly, right, like it's it's plausible. I guess the reason why it doesn't feel likely to me is that it was very obvious when you'd talk to, you know, people familiar with Boris Johnson's thinking, indeed, when you just like read what he wrote in the public domain, right, that in terms of the specific objections that he and his allies had to the the backstop and the withdrawal agreement negotiated by Theresa May, you could just achieve all of those by going, mate, there's a fight for sanitary border in the Irish Sea now. It's, it's really going to be fine if we thicken that border a little bit now. Which, you know, by the way, sidebar on that, I, I, I do actually think we're hugely underestimating the fact that it probably won't be fine to thicken that border. Mm. There was an excellent investigation by BBC Northern Ireland about the extent to which there is, yeah, like, yeah, the number of kind of not quite active, but not as inactive as one would wish paramilitaries there still are in Northern Ireland. And actually, Lots of those are unionist paramilitaries. And like if you are if you're a unionist and you are violently opposed to the thickening of this sea border, right? You don't actually have to you don't have to do like particularly effective terrorism to protest that. You just need to like make working at Hollyhead, at any of the relevant ports, right? You just need to make like those not particularly well paid jobs a job where someone's just like, Do you know what? I think I'll pass. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you really do not have to be a particularly effective terrorist to massively cripple the effectiveness of it. I, I think it is, yeah, I mean, obviously it's preferable to a land border because a land border is just a, a vector for a whole number of additional problems. But mm-hmm. like ultimately, 
yeah, it's a bad arrangement in my view. And that's, yeah, like the, you know, wow, it really is like early 2019 all over again. The backstop was good. (laughs) The difference now is I don't think that the government really understands what it wants, right? Our objectives on fishing are impossible to reconcile with the, I think, actually quite good changes to agricultural policy on the whole the government is proposing. It's impossible to like, like, like with the level playing field stuff, it's just like, well, it's impossible to reconcile this with the stuff we've been willing to sign up to for the Japan trade deal. Like <laughs> one of those things where like, it's very hard not to just look at it and be like, why are we doing this? And isn't the answer just like we're doing this because we need to like defeat the EU? You cannot defeat a country and sign a trade deal with them. I'm sorry, I know I'm like becoming a stuck record literally in the same podcast, but but yeah, that's kind of my like view about why I just don't think it is 2019 all over again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the question, isn't it? I think you've outlined whichever way it goes, whether we get a deal or not, those are the reasons. Either like like the things that the government wants are A, sovereignty, quote unquote, B, to look like it has won, and you've kind of made the made the case quite clearly that you can't really win a trade negotiation like this unless you walk away. So for that reason, no deal is looking more likely. It was a gloomy morning call, Stephen, <laughs> but that was the conclusion. <laughs> and also because insofar as we do know what the government wants, that is the ideal that it keeps, that it keeps pointing to. Like earlier this morning... I looked back at David Frost, the main UK Brexit negotiator's speech that he delivered in February about what, you know, he called it reflections on the revolutions in Europe and gave a kind of like, kind of pseudo intellectual speech about in which he he's very explicit that he hopes that he'll be able to shed more light for people in the EU on the thinking of him and people like him going into to Brexit negotiations and what they really want from Britain's relationship with the European Union. And in that it, it is quite clear that it's ideological and is, and is about these vague ideas of like complete freedom and, and sovereignty, which, as you've been saying, Stephen, like fundamentally when you boil it down are just like antithetical <laughs> to signing up to compromises and taking on some other rules and sort of compromising on your freedom again to get a trade deal. So I feel like there's that, but also I think that the point you made, Anush, about the way Boris Johnson just completely like broke a promise and went back on his word at the 11th hour in the last Brexit negotiations, I think that, that that's, that's the thing I keep thinking about when I think of about what the options are now because in that scenario like Boris Johnson didn't really win you know he just did what he always said he he wasn't gonna do that he you know that he valued the union so much and he would you know never put a border down the Irish Sea da, da, da. and then at the 11th hour oops I put a little border down the Irish Sea um <laughs> I did you know I had a nice walk with Leo Varadkar and I just you know got got this Brexit deal done oven ready deal oh, and it was a like, but it it worked to a certain extent, but because of the way the entire public debate around Brexit was at that point, all of the warnings had been around no deal. And a lot of politicians were just making the case against Brexit rather than against different forms of Brexit. I mean, I mean we've said this on the podcast like lots and lots of times before, but it meant that we went into the last election talking about Brexit or not Brexit rather than really shining a light on 
what that deal looked like and basically the fact that Boris Johnson had broken his promise to Ulster unionists and was doing the thing that he had always said he wouldn't do and and really everyone at the, well a lot of people at the time were saying see you know you said he could get a deal and look he's done it he's a genius oh he's very good but like that what that really wasn't what happened and I just do wonder given the state of discussions around Brexit whether something like that is possible again it was funny because I think I think Stephen you weren't in the office that day that that came through so it was just me and Patrick and we really hadn't seen that deal coming and even when Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar met up because we just took it as a given that that was a red line that had been clearly stated by Boris Johnson that he wouldn't cross and so again I'm wondering if there's just something I'm not seeing looking at these negotiations where we think that there's a red line that they won't cross, that maybe they will. And then even if it isn't really the case, we will have enough of a kind of blinkered public discussion around it that a lot of places will will be saying, gosh, Boris Johnson's very good. Look what he did. He beat the EU and got the deal that everyone said he couldn't get. I wonder if, if that will be the case, because maybe it just isn't the case in terms of the public debate and the rhetoric around it that you can only win a negotiation by walking away maybe you can win a negotiation just by sort of fooling people into thinking that by going back on your own red lines you've won well I think you're absolutely right that they got away with it last time I mean the number of news sorry to you know attack my fellow journalists but the number of news programs and interviews and things that I watched and read during that time where it was like well everyone said he couldn't do it and he came out with a deal and you're like well he just changed the parameters <laughs> you know he like you say he, he he went back on his word but you know nevertheless the narrative was he struck this deal he's got us out of this gridlock now all you have to do is vote for it and we'll get Brexit done and that's what happened and, and you know the Conservative Party really benefited from from that kind of spin and from the sort of media repetition of that spin. And so there's no reason why they wouldn't believe that they couldn't get away with that again. So I do think that the, the one glimmer of hope for us, I, I know that, Stephen, you've said all along that it's unlikely that this is going to end in a deal. And because you've been watching every detail and every twist and turn of it throughout this whole time, then I'm more inclined to to think that what you think is the outcome is the likeliest outcome. But that's the one glimmer of hope is that they've just have such chutzpah that they that, that they think that they could get away with it again and, and get their MPs to vote for this deal and, and get the public to swallow the idea that they've somehow won. So it's not impossible because it's, it has happened that way before. But nevertheless, you know, even if we do have a deal, I do think that they've they, they've been very negligent because already that businesses aren't prepared at all for the outcome of this either way. You had the Public Accounts Committee accusing the government of taking limited responsibility for Brexit preparation. You watch these adverts on TV and you see these signs saying, you know, get ready and there's a risk of disruption and delay at the at the crossings and everything. And you think it's December now. Why wasn't there some kind of national plan for this? We've known we were leaving since since 2016. I know that's sort of an obvious thing to say, but it's it's very strange that you sort of had these these abortive campaigns sort of last year and I think over the summer this year like get your business ready for for Brexit because everything's going to change at the borders if whatever the deal is that we strike but there's never been a sort of concerted effort to to make sure that that small businesses are ready and and I think there was some polling that said over a third of small businesses 
think that the transition period will be extended again because that's you know that's happened before so that's that's a big concern whether we have a deal or not is is the way that the, the government doesn't seem to have faced the reality of what's going to happen because the thing is right is, is so obviously i also got the like border in the sea stuff wrong because i kept writing and like look, of course you can get another deal like this. Of course this is completely compatible with everything he says. But there's this thing called the DUP and there are at least seven Conservative MPs who care enough about the union with Northern Ireland that they won't vote for it. So they'll have to, like, get a new parliament before they can pass this deal. And, yeah, and and they'll probably try and do it afterwards, which obviously was, like, completely wrong on several important parliamentary aspects. So obviously I could similarly be completely wrong about what happens now but i think it comes back to sort of everything you've just said there and right which isn't what is the golden thread of the fact that like the government hasn't really taken ownership of the preparation process because like the essence of a boris johnson government right like indeed that's kind of like the root of his political appeal is that it's like hey guys don't worry it'd be cool it'll be cool i'm not a regular prime minister i'm a cool prime minister like <laughs> that's and- completely because you watched mean girls last night i know this because you tweeted about it filtering <laughs> 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 through into your content yeah it's a great film but uh, but that's kind of his whole thing right and i think the you know, like the the beauty of the bo- putting the border in the irish sea from a kind of maximal brexit perspective right i'm assuming by the way that this maximal Brexiteer does want to maintain the cross-party consensus about our policy with reference to Northern Ireland that we've had since 1985. If your aim is like maximum sovereignty, maintain the cross-party bilateral policy we have had with the Republic towards this issue since 1985, right? It ticks all of those boxes from a policy perspective. It will create difficulties around enforcement and, and terrorism uh, entry points, but it's a lot easier to manage than on the land border. But the other reason why it's easy to to manage is like, I'm not an iPod. I don't notice whether or not I've entered a sort of magical different custom zone when I, you know, if I when I cross from London to Belfast. So it was like, it was also like the easiest concession to make because the voters who tangibly notice it, well, as I was about to say, they can't vote Conservative. Actually, they can vote Conservative, but a few parties, it does exist now. But like, they don't vote Conservative and the Conservative Party, if it got zero votes in Northern Ireland at an election, it would make zero difference to whether or not they form the next government. Whereas the problem with any like kind of, hey guys, I've checked and most of this fish gets eaten in the EU anyway, so it's not even clear to me what what the economic benefit of of us regaining these. Yeah, like one of the reasons why we negotiated away from it is actually like just as actually the other beauty of the border is it, it did open up. US, UK and, and Japan style trade deals, because if our policy towards farming is to shift it towards, you know, sustainability, biodiversity and a bunch of other things, then broadly, you don't need to protect British factory farms anymore. You, you can open them up to very painful and sharp competition in both both territories. But the thing is, is I think because like the concessions you'd have to make are so much more tangible this time. I just don't really believe that Boris Johnson's government is built to do it. The flip side of that is obviously I sent this very depressing morning call today and a senior Conservative Brexiteer who is not fond of the current government went, but look, isn't the flip side of this that the reason why they will, in their view, buckle is they were like, is the not buckling has a cost too? They were like, and, and said, and we've never, this, they said this government has never been willing to go, 
by the way, and obviously someone who does believe you get all of these benefits from deregulating, they're like, yeah, they're like, the reason why I'm so depressed about Brexit is that like the government is never going to go and hear the benefits of deregulation. So they'll just concede at the last moment. God, I never thought I'd say that I missed it when we were talking about coronavirus on this podcast. But mm-hmm. yeah, I guess, of course, one perspective that I personally don't really share is, oh, well, it doesn't matter because the envisaged Brexit, Boris Johnson, is such a hard Brexit that it is relatively small beer, which, I mean, I think is true from an economic perspective, although there is quite a big difference between, yeah, the, from a technical perspective, there's no difference between like, like, a mortgage and like just having to pay the three and a half three and a half grand where am i apparently moving to yeah like mm-hmm. between like your mortgage and having to pay it all up front except there is quite a big difference in terms of the economic cost but alva one thing you've talked about is there is actually quite a lot of other important differences between a deal and no deal even allowing for the fact they're both very hard brexit yeah exactly and and i think it probably just is worth hammering the point that i suppose people saying that there isn't much of a difference between a hard brexit deal and no deal have a point in that a deal as we sort of expect it to look if there is one would be a sort of bare bones deal that would help us deal with things like tariffs, but it would keep all of the other sort of customs checks and the other frictions that would have a damaging impact on supply chains. It would have a bigger impact in terms of unemployment and a bigger hit to our GDP. But I sort of thought it would be worth rehashing in terms of Northern Ireland, just because there's still, maybe because it is a bit technical, I think people are still a bit confused about the Northern Ireland Protocol and what it would mean and so on. So just why Northern Ireland really, really needs a trade deal is that basically we already have a deal of sorts between the UK and the EU in terms of arrangements for Northern Ireland, and that's called the Northern Ireland Protocol, which isn't in place at the moment, which comes in on the 1st of January. And as you say, that would basically, it's intended to prevent a hardening of the border on the island of Ireland, but it effectively will harden the border in the Irish Sea because at Northern Irish ports, checks and tariffs and so on will have to be done there so that those goods coming from from GB into Northern Ireland aren't at risk of entering the customs union. And then if they just stay in Northern Ireland, they can be refunded, those tariffs. And if they move on into the Republic of Ireland, then, then they still apply. As you've said, Stephen, like that... Northern Ireland Protocol applies whether we get a deal or not, which I think people haven't necessarily appreciated, but it just makes a huge difference whether there's a deal there or not, because I mean, it's the same for the rest of the UK, but whether you're conducting those checks and there is no deal, so you're applying tariffs to literally everything, or whether you already have quite comprehensive alignment through a deal and you're just doing some checks is a massive difference it doesn't mean that the the northern Ireland protocol doesn't go away but it's been basically accepted that the government won't need to implement the clauses in the internal market bill which sort of would tear up aspects of the northern irish protocol it's basically been accepted that the government wouldn't need to do that if there is a deal. The Northern Ireland Protocol will still apply and there would still be a bit of friction, but a deal makes those considerations unnecessary. But basically, if there isn't a deal, then you're in a situation which 
no one wants where there are a lot of checks on everything coming into Northern Ireland and you're looking at Northern Ireland being economically quite isolated from the rest of the United Kingdom which would be very bad or you're looking at the situation that the UK government has has envisaged of bringing in the terms of the internal market bill which would just make it a million times worse because you'd be trying to mitigate all those problems at the border between GB and Northern Ireland by basically shifting all of those problems to the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and it's actually hard to imagine what that would mean. I mean people have talked about the security risks of doing that and the economic dangers of doing that like how damaging that would be to the peace process you've had warnings about that internationally but actually it's very hard to even imagine what would happen if the terms of the internal market bill were brought in and that's what we're seeing today with the government planning to put those clauses back in and then there's going to be a sort of ping pong between the house of commons and the house of lords which will keep trying to remove them but the government is kind of trying to leverage the situation in northern ireland as the kind of backdrop of its other negotiations and so it's just a reminder of how important a deal would be because really no deal whether you have the this sort of the security and the safety net intended by the Northern Ireland Protocol or whether the government rips it up basically neither situation is good what but one is like really disastrous and one is just quite bad and just sort of either way one is almost inconceivably bad and one is quite tangibly bad. And, and Stephen, you were talking about the tangibly bad one where you can imagine the very, I think, legitimate objections of Ulster Unionists and loyalists in Northern Ireland who object to the thickening of that border down the Irish Sea. In the event of, of a no deal where the government is abiding by international law and applying those checks, that's still a security risk. But it's just still miles better than the inconceivably bad alternative. And I just didn't feel like that was being explained over the weekend on certain politics programs and people weren't really going into it. And I actually still think that probably your average person on the street just has no idea what the arrangements for Northern Ireland are looking like anymore. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You yeah. Ask Us. The question today is, what is the state of green politics in Britain, including but not limited to the Greens? 
So I, I really liked this question because I chaired an event for our sort of sister publication, Spotlight, the policy-focused New Statesman supplement for our Net Zero Policy Week a couple of weeks ago. And the Conservative MP who was due to join couldn't take part. So it was actually just a panel event between the Labour environment spokesperson, the Lib Dem environment spokesperson and Caroline Lucas, the obviously the former Greens leader. And so it was just a very thoughtful discussion about politics as they were all referring to it on the green left I feel like it's a big question to think about the state of green politics overall in terms of whether they are good or bad or sort of drawing any sort of grand conclusion but I think just what really struck me from from that conversation I mean maybe it was just a sort of a product of the format where they were all kind of speaking against an, a sort of a straw conservative man who wasn't there in a way but it really kind of for me clarified just that the fundamental difference in politics from a climate emergency perspective is is sort of conservative or not conservative that actually in terms of individual policies towards net zero the Lib Dems and Greens and Labour you know are just sort of overwhelmingly in agreement and even like Caroline Lucas, who would sort of take the most sort of the strongest line on everything in terms of policies, did basically agree with the Lib Dems and Labour on everything and and where they really diverged was on much bigger things around around voting reform and so on and, and how you actually facilitate net zero policies through our current political system. But just in terms of the policies themselves, they were really unanimous and had so many important ideas and, and again to plug our you know our great free morning email I wrote about this in morning call on Friday in terms of Boris Johnson's new target for sort of the amount that, that carbon emissions will, should be cut by 2030 mm. but just like my main point was what had come out of that panel discussion which is really that even though there are different headline targets for net zero between the different parties, really it's just a question of like now or not now, like whether you are making the bulk of the difficult policy decisions that you need to make in this parliament right now or whether you're kind of putting them off. And because like really there is just agreement in green politics even among conservatives who are sort of individually passionate about this, that the big changes need to be made now. And it was, and it's really quite simple. I mean, I'm interested to hear, to hear what the two of you think about it. I, th I think that there is still just a real challenge in terms of getting enough political airtime for these things and how these policies are represented in our political system. But I, but I kind of just felt that in terms of the thinking around this and the erudition of, of all of those politicians and those parties, that the left is really quite on the same page on this. And it's just that the problem is that none of them are in power and how you try to keep this conservative government, how you try to hold this conservative government to account on the issue. I think that last point is it is exactly the thing that I would say is the big problem with green politics in this country or green politics on the left in this country, which is that they kind of have the same problem in holding the government to account as they do with their sort of austerity problem. Every time the government announces spending on public services, like Boris Johnson 
did a lot before the election and has done since is their only real response because they're, they're all quite in agreement that the government isn't spending enough on you know whatever service we're talking about in whichever scenario their only response is ever well this money is welcome any funding is welcome but it's not enough it doesn't make up for this number of cuts it's still a cut in real terms or whatever and i do think there's a, there's a similar problem with responding to the actually numerous announcements that the government is making on green policies so that the most recent target the 68% cutting carbon emissions by 2030 of the 1990 levels that Boris Johnson made. I think it was last week. That's something where, again, all the Green parties and and the, the representatives of green policies in, in those parties have to say, well, you know, it's good that we want to cut carbon emissions, but this is nowhere near you know, fast enough, or the government doesn't even meet its existing targets. So how can it make another target before it sort of gets everything in order first? And I think that's, that's a very difficult kind of argument to cut through when they're when the government is making announcements that sound bold to people. So bringing that ban on petrol car sales forward by 10 years, that sounds huge to drivers, that sounds big to right wing newspapers. So when you have Ed Miliband and, you know, his equivalents in other parties and, and the green movement as a whole, just saying sort of okay but it's not soon enough or okay but the government's already failing on some of its green ambitions already and why aren't they doing more I always feel sorry for parties when they have to try and make arguments like that because it it, it kind of just comes across as a bit as a bit weak and ungrateful rather than having your own vision and I think that the the green left has fallen into that groove recently because the government does have some good things to say about its ambitions for the environment but as as its critics would rightly point out in reality it's not doing enough to 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 meet the rhetoric yet yeah i think it's a really good question and it's it's really exciting to to be able to talk about it to so to take like the local answer right the thing we're blessed with in this country is that there is no mainstream or indeed at present serious political party yeah, I don't mean that as in like, I mean, there is no political party that is a serious endeavour to, you know, win more than eight council seats that does not believe that climate change exists, acknowledge that it is the most important existential threat we face. And even allowing for the, I think, you know, deeply incoherent approach to debt and deficit that Rishi Sunak is, is so wedded to, right? Even so, these big investment and borrowing priorities are, are about meeting the challenge of transition. And so I think it's like, that's very positive and we're sort of blessed with a variety of extra parliamentary movements and whatever you might think about the content of them and yeah obviously they have a wide range of of aims then they are very good at uh, maintaining the salience public profile of this issue so i think from a uk perspective there's lots of of positives and i think yeah that the structural problem with a lot of what the government proposes it's a structural problem with a lot what a lot of Boris Johnson proposes on every policy issue, which is this kind of like, you know, like, and maybe carbon capture technology will work and it will be brilliant. And maybe like the stuff that we're doing R&D on will, will be fantastic. And I think you should always spend money on R&D. But I'm always slightly concerned that Boris Johnson's approach is always to be like, oh, but, but we might be able to like invent something that allows us to get through this in the same way that, you know, one of the, the criticisms that lots of environments, including myself, would make of, of Labour's environmental policies in 2019 and, and 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 also now is um everyone can have their own electric car it's not actually they they probably can't we just need far fewer we need a much bigger investment in cycling public transport and collective yeah whether they're 
collective facilitated by the state creating the regulatory incentives for the private sector to do more ride sharing or it's directly state provided whether it's a combination of both whatever car ownership needs to decline as well as those cars themselves being greener and i think then that problem of being in that like political zone you know like ditto like you know the greens where it's just like oh you know that that 34 metres of woodland that will be destroyed by high speed two is a lot more important than the 35 metres of woodland that will be destroyed by like a teeny tiny length of, I'm not going to pretend I'm a motorist, extension to, I want to say, the A1. But I think actually those are, those are all broadly lovely problems to have and actually most environmental movements most where in the world would give their ITs for. The problem I think is is actually more at the global level where there's lots of, you know, yeah, there are lots of places where, where all those dynamics also apply. It's obviously positive and a huge step up than we will again have a, an American president who believes in climate change, not least because one of the areas where Joe Biden will be more freed up is the ability to exert himself in foreign policy, which may mean that, uh, yeah, Bolsonaro, and apologize, apologies if I've massacred the pronunciation of his name there, faces pressure not to destroy large chunks of the world's biggest carbon sink. But the paralysis of US politics, the fact that, you know, the Republican Party is now just incentivized to block everything the Democrats do because of, of the fact that their coalition is incredibly well optimized to hold power at the Senate and at a presidential level, even even when they, you know, lose the vote quite comfortably in popular vote terms, does mean that we do have a situation where like the world's biggest polluter, arguably still the world's only superpower, is not in a great place on it. And there is still, I think, a question about whether or not in Europe we are thinking enough about the fact that, like, the, the mission of British decarbonisation is not just about how we get to net zero. It's about modelling how a democracy can transition to net zero and remain in office. So, like, real talk, right? That's, that is kind of the thing that, that needs to be proved. Mm. But, yeah, so I, I actually am I'm, I'm optimistic about the, the UK because there is a lot of positive stuff going on in all three parties there's this consensus about the solution which i think is a positive place to be in from a campaigning perspective but with that caveat about the global stuff you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anush shikelian and my colleagues stephen bush and alva ray we're produced by nick hilton and our music is devil with the devil licensed under creative commons thanks so much for listening 